Religion without sacrifice is not religion. Religion, the verb, back to the Latin, religio, relink, as in gather around, link together around a campfire, around an altar, around a shrine, around each other. When I first began thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about Veterans Day, celebrated a few days ago, and the many sailors and soldiers over the years who made the so-called ultimate sacrifice of giving their lives in military uniform, supporting their country. But the original meaning of sacrifice is not on behalf of one's country, but the offering of something to a deity. These can be significant things. Unto thee I commend my spirit. Or more modest, as for instance, Socrates' last remark to his lifelong comrade, Credo, and don't forget to sacrifice a rooster to Asclepios. Asclepios, incidentally, was kind of a demigod, not really a god, he was a person, a hero, um, with some serious healing powers, including authority, even though he was mortal and, it, and was actually already dead, but he had the healing capacity to bring dead people back to life. Not his own life, but others, he could do that. Thus asking his friend and neighbor, Credo, to make an offering to uh, this demigod was logical and timely. In Athens and elsewhere, sacrifice in the early days always involved killing something alive and offering that to the priests who divvied up the choicest parts for the deity, usually, and split the rest among themselves and the poor. As E.O. James outlined in this morning's reading, among the people of ancient Palestine, including the Israelites, Human sacrifice was a recognized and widely accepted custom, including among the Israelites. Over the centuries following the conquest of Canaan, however, the practice of giving up, giving up firstborn sons began to wane. In its place, a substitute victim was offered instead of a human one, and it's outlined in the Abraham and Isaac story. Sacrifices consisted among the Jews in the ancient times after human sacrifice was eliminated. Sacrifices consisted only of domesticated animals, grain, and the first fruit of trees, vineyards, and gardens. Under no circumstances whatsoever might wild animals be sacrificed. In 621 BCE, um, before Common Era, the Jewish sacrificial practice was reordered, redesigned. Thereafter, sacrifices were to be offered at only one single place in all Israel, the temple at Jerusalem. Before then, you could do it on the ground, and all you had to do, and you had to sprinkle some of the blood. They got rid of that. The only one place was this sacred 
highly structured environment in the temple. This continued for almost 700 years until the destruction of the temple by the Roman Empire in 70 common era brought the entire Jewish sacrificial system to a sudden permanent end. From then on until today, for the most part, prayer and service in the synagogue for superseded sacrifice as the basic medium of divine worship throughout Judaism, soon to be joined by Christianity and Islam throughout the entire Western world. By the time the Roman converted to Christianity a few centuries later, um, there were no animal sacrifices in the West to speak of. Humanity across the world continues to employ prayer and service to focus worship. And we still make burnt offerings and anoint with smudge sticks and incense to bless dwellings, voyagers, and special moments in all of our lives. And though these are not human or animal sacrifices, they do have parallels. Magat Mahandi was one of the great heroes of the last century building on the work of nonviolent resistance writer and practitioner, the Unitarian Henry David Thoreau, Gandhi organized a decades-long struggle to successfully end 200 years of British settler colonialism in India. In 1925, Gandhi published his list of seven social sins written at the top of the order of service. Wealth without work, leisure without conscience, knowledge without character, commerce without morality, science without humanity, politics without principle, and religion without sacrifice. A nearly identical list had been published about a year earlier in England in a sermon by the Archbishop at Winchester Abbey. But the great Indian liberator took what he had been given and reworked it slightly. Below the list, Gandhi wrote that naturally the friend who sent me this does not want the readers to know these things merely through the intellect, but to know them through their hearts so as to avoid them. All of these maxims are good guides for behavior. They're aspirational, something to strive for to keep in mind as kind of a devotional mantra for keeping one's bearings and moral compass. Always worth thinking about. But here's the irony. Religion without sacrifice has an attractive sound. Seems very modern. After all, is it not an advance for civilization that we have eliminated gruesome sacrifices of animals and humans? What could Gandhi have meant? I remember when my now 41-year-old daughter was in middle school and told me more than once about her girlfriends whose parents admonished them repeatedly, I have sacrificed so much for you. You must perform as I've helped you to recognize is definitely best. To which I would say, Meredith, extraordinary gifts you have given me so outweigh anything I had to shell out, I consider it a wonderful bargain that I got more out of than I could ever have imagined. 
Not that you still don't have to clean your room. Consider, if you will, the important ways that we willingly sacrifice for whatever we hold high. My grandparents willingly forewent many pleasures so they could afford to send their children to college despite the Great Depression. My mom went back to work as an inner-city librarian to make sure her kids had the same better chance. These were sacrifices they made, but they recognized, but they were recognized as wonderful to those who offered them because of their love for the recipients and their pride. Seeing my daughter blossom into a strong, vibrant, politically and socially aware and loving woman was all I wanted or needed to feel happy and fulfilled about the equation. As Bob Dylan says, everything was paid that was owed. As a minister, I've had occasion to perform many weddings. I think I've officiated at, it's fairly accurate, 435, might be 437, it might be 433, but it's right in there. The all weddings are occasions for great joy and festivity and a lot of fun for everyone, especially the, the couple, but definitely the minister. And every clergyman or clergywoman, of course, is different, but most of us schedule two or three meetings with the bridal couple to get to know them and figure out who they are and what getting married means to them uh, so that I can craft an appropriate service with their help. What do they want the ceremony to highlight and say about them and about their love for one another? We talk about what marriage means to them and they, what they want to pledge to each other in front of their loved ones and in front of their consciences and God. At this point, one of the things I always try to share is an insight from my favorite seminary professor, process theologian, Bernie Loomer, that when you are marrying another person, you are not pledging your troth to that other person not saying, I'll always love you the way you are. After all, she or he will change, as will you. Indeed, every seven years, every cell in your body is new. We are not the same person as time goes on, but by. So the idea is to pledge your troth to the relationship. And that's where the sacrifice comes in. You don't love Carol for... I do love Carol. But Carolyn will change, as will I. The, the thing to do is to center your self in the relationship to honor and hold that as the new, basically, very important identity. The wedding ritual itself is designed not so much to change people, but to remake them. Anyway, that's how I conceive of it. The sacred circle of the wedding party, aligned as it usually is around the altar, is linked architecturally and psychologically to the cosmic umbilicus running through all creation and up and down through the church from heaven to hell, if we want to think that way, from highest to most grounded. 
The celebrants are brought through the power of the ritual form back to the cauldron of creation and become remade as one loving team. That's the design of the ritual, not just to get a lot of good photos. Neither is asked, neither the bride nor the groom, the groom nor the groom, neither of the two parties, the bride nor the other bride, is asked to become subsumed in the other person, not themselves anymore. No, you've got to maintain your identity, but you've got to recognize the primacy of the now relationship. And it makes it easier when you do that to adjust to children and the added responsibilities of parenthood likely to be coming along very soon. And that is a serious sacrifice as Amanda, my colleague and director of um, religious education, pointed out in her lovely children's story while introducing us to her youngest child, Miriam. Giving up autonomy over oneself alone to become mutually responsible for preserving love between you and another growing person, that is the transformation. This is also true in larger communities of which we are part. The sacrifice of the ego to the community. The transformation from a singular identity into a reborn, much larger and more whole self. That is the essence of sacrifice. And it is, as I said, it was the, you know, I loved being a parent. And I think I did a better job at it and worked harder at it than any other thing I did in my life. Um, and it was absolutely transformational and wonderful. So I think that's probably true. If I could put that same energy into everything I do, it would all be transformed. So may we wish. And so may we strive to help each other do. Amen.